Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Turing Machine. But before we jump into that game, I do have some poll results to discuss, and maybe it's relevant to tonight's play. I don't know. We'll, we'll circle back to that. But the question I asked on a poll this week is, is fun an important aspect of a board game for you when you consider purchasing it or your enjoyment when playing it? The reason I asked this question, it's been on my mind lately because I was reading a social media post by a board game designer, and they mentioned that they weren't always designing games with the intent of creating fun, that they that they thought fun was a bad criteria. And I think they said it specifically in the context of reviewers are always mentioning whether they had fun or not. I was thinking, well, I often talk about fun in our game reviews. I'll usually rave about a game a little bit more if I just had fun playing it, even if maybe the mechanisms are clunky or other reasons. And so that stuck with me. So I thought, well, if people are designing games and they don't, they're not looking to design them to be fun, then there's got to be people that enjoy games that are not fun. So I asked this poll question. I put four options. Number one, fun is critical. I don't want to play a game that's not fun. And that got 75%. Fun is important, but I still like games that aren't fun for other reasons. That got 25%. No, I don't care if a game is fun when I choose to buy or play it. Got 0%. And I hate fun. Got 0%. So it seems like the vast majority of people at least are interested in having fun when they're playing games. And when I say fun, you know, I put quotes around it because it's kind of a like, what does that mean? And a lot of the questions I got on this, a lot of the response I got was like, well, what does that mean? Fun is different for different people. And I agree with that. Like fun might be a heavy Euro and planning, sorry, a heavy resource management game and planning several turns out. And fun might be a quick little dexterity game where people are laughing and joking at the table. When I say fun, I'm just saying like, I'm sitting there enjoying myself. Something about the game is making the experience pleasant for me. So that's what I meant by fun. How did you guys answer this? I think that I put that fun is, I don't know. I don't know, Tim. What was it? I don't know. I think it was super, <laughs> super, super important to me. I Was it fun is critical or it's important, but not the most important thing? I think I put fun is critical, but thinking more about it, there's, there's games that I play for different reasons. There's different moods that a game is going to put me in, or if I'm in a different mood, I might go pick a different game, but in some way or another, I play board games because they are fun to me or soothing to me or relaxing to me. They do something to my brain that's enjoyable. So yeah, I play board games because they're fun and we do a podcast because it's fun. I love talking about board games. So maybe I'm weird like that and I realize it might not be the same for everybody. But for me, yeah, I think any board from the driest, you're well, I don't know if that's even true. <laughs> There's some board games that all avoid because they're so dull and boring. So yeah, not every board game is fun to me, but I play board games because they're fun. I think this is just a really weird philosophical kind of question. It's sort of like that one about could anybody ever do anything truly altruistic because nobody does anything that doesn't give them pleasure or doesn't satisfy some need for them. So are you ever truly being altruistic? And this is sort of the same thing. I mean, why does anybody, why would anybody ever do anything they thought was unpleasant? So to me, I'm thinking of fun, not as woohoo, fun, fun, but I'm having a pleasant experience, which I think is Tim, sort of what you were saying. And I'm not going to choose to do anything that isn't enjoyable for me, unless I have a very specific reason, like actually a perfect example, the game this war of mine 
is not a fun game, but it's also not intended to be a fun game. But it's also very singular in that it's one of the few games I've ever played that really is not intended to be fun. It's intended to be kind of an experience that you yeah, is very thoughtful. But other than that, that rare occasion, yeah, of course, I think games ought to be fun. Why would I want to play it if it's not fun? Well, okay, so that's that's interesting. You mentioned this Wormine, Chris, because several people that responded to the poll or comments had mentioned this Wormine as a game that you would play that's not fun and it's not intended to be fun. And I think the designer I'm talking about had also designed some games that are also similar. We're intended to create emotions. We're intended to teach maybe, but not to be fun. And yet I can't think of a single experience, including this Wormine, that I actually liked when it wasn't fun. You know, and, and again, fun may mean different things. Sometimes fun is a, is a heavy resource management game for me. It has to be creating happiness for me. It's like, oh, I really like this puzzle. I'm enjoying doing this puzzle, not this is painful, right? But it's interesting because other media sources, I may not feel that way. There are books that I've read that are pretty tough, that are hard topics, and they're mostly sad, and I found them really enjoyable movies the same. One of the people who responded, Brian Chandler had mentioned movies uh, in comparison. And he said, well, I'm really glad that I watched Schindler's List, but I don't enjoy Schindler's List. And I think Schindler's List is a great example of a movie that can both be educational, can be sad, but can also be entertaining. And it is like there are moments in that movie that are that are charming. There are moments that are funny. And it's not a funny topic at all. And I think the best board games, for me at least, will create some fun even when they're dealing with dull topics or, or hard topics or whatever, there's got to be something that's creating an enjoyable time for me. So for me, fun is really important. And that's why I'd mention it a lot. I'll use the word fun because I think if a game creates that moment of like, wow, this was just, this was enjoyable, then I'm going to call it out and talk about how that was special to me and not just, hey, I just learned something from that game. That's, that's less important to me. So here's how some people responded on our poll. Carolina Martin said, I guess it's the definition of fun. I love playing Barrage. I find it very nice to play and I feel accomplishment. However, I have fun playing Scythe and Clans of Caledonia. Nice call out, Carolina, on the Barrage is not always fun. That's a good, that's a good call out there. It's, uh, it is kind of always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Bedford said, a strangely difficult question to answer. I guess the only way is to consider the opposite, boring. I won't play a game I consider boring, so I guess fun is critical. Nicholas Vallett said, fun is mandatory, but who can blame you if you find fun in the weirdest or boring for most things? In my case, sweet, sweet logistics. Over on Blue Sky, Daniel Winter from Board Game Feast said, broadly, yes, but there are definitely games I reach for to evoke other emotions. A game experience can be engaging, enlightening, or educational, all without being fun per se, which is, yes, they can evoke those emotions. I just personally don't go to board games for for those things which is interesting because I do go to some other media for it. Connie Vogelman, the designer of Apiary and the upcoming Wormspan said, like others have said, it depends on the definition of fun. Do I play games for personal enjoyment and self-satisfaction? Yes, but that can mean laughter from a party game, outrage from social deduction, or that feeling of cleverness that comes from a tricky Euro, all different types of fun. Yeah, I totally agree. There are definitely different types of fun and different types of games evoke fun in different ways for me. And Mel said, it's 100% about the fun. If not, you're at the wrong table. So, you know, a variety of answers there. I think uh, obviously the poll results showed that the vast majority of people do think that they're playing games for fun, though. This actually brings up an interesting, an interesting example to me. And I don't think that I've mentioned this one before. So I think I'm bringing it up for the first time. But there is a game that was uh, 
it wasn't put out. I mean, it was uh, not done as a production game, but it was done as an art piece by a designer named Brenda Romero, and it's called Train. And the game is one where you uh, you load passengers onto trains, essentially like a route building. You're trying to m- create the most efficient movement of people to the station until the end of the game it's revealed that the final station is a nazi concentration camp and that to me is an example of sort of the dichotomy here where presumably you're having fun throughout the game but at the end there's this reveal that's intended to like bring you to your knees with you know angst at what you were doing the entire time and i look at that and i think about this in the context of that question and how in the end, you're either creating something that is enjoyable and fun, or you're essentially creating an art piece more than a game. So I think overall, this goes back to that thing about uh, this war of mine. If you're not creating games for fun, then you're creating them for some something else. You're creating them for the experience. But to me, a game is about having fun. I think there are some games too that even though they may be created for fun, they don't always create fun for me. And I'm going to call it a game that Adam's talked about several times and that's Soul Last Days of a Star. I love the concept of that game, but for some reason when I'm playing it, I'm not enjoying my experience with it. Windward was another one that, you know, one of the few ones that we reviewed and I just really didn't, didn't have fun playing it. So I think those were clearly intended to be fun, but they weren't fun for me. Another great example, we played Irish Gage together. It's one of the first games that the three of us played first game night that Adam got invited to our table. Yep. And it's a train game. It's, you know, some stocks. It's uh, one of these, what, cube rail games. And I remember the whole time playing that going like, well, this is an interesting puzzle, but I don't like the, the decisions I'm making. I don't like the tension that's coming in here. I'm not enjoying what's happening here. It was interesting to see the conclusion, but I don't, but I didn't feel like I had fun there. I wouldn't have then asked for it again because I didn't really have fun with it. But I, I would expect that that game was intended to create fun. And that's why most people go to train games. So, you know, part of it is just different strokes for different folks. All right. Well, let's jump into Turing Machine. We'll start with the description of the game. In the game Turing Machine, one to four players revisit the earliest days of computing, working to deduce a three number code using a logic based computer, which I'm saying with air quotes, in a series of punch cards. The name of this game is a nod to the mathematician Alan Turing, who created a machine-based automated computational model that he himself referred to as a, quote, automatic machine, which is a extremely uninteresting and undescriptive, non-descriptive name, but I guess his brilliance was in design, not in naming things. But for those who find this history fascinating like I do, uh, Turing was also a key part of the effort to crack the code of the German Enigma machine during World War II, which is an accomplishment that likely had a huge impact on the outcome of the war. And that chapter of history is also captured in a terrific film that I think we mentioned when this game came up uh, several weeks ago on one of our other episodes, The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Great movie, uh, definitely recommend watching it even if you never actually play Turing Machine. But I digress, Uh, back to the game. Over the course of several rounds, players will use the Turing machine to guess at and ultimately deduce a code made up of three numbers between one and five. 
This is done using a series of numbered punch cards in a set of cards containing logical propositions about the numbers that a player guesses. That probably sounds a little confusing, but it'll make sense in just a minute. After the players have selected a problem contained in the rulebook, and as I understand it, there's also millions more available on the game's website, they'll start each round by guessing a three-digit number. Each number also corresponds with a colored shape. So for example, the first number will be a blue triangle, the second will be a yellow square, and the third will be a purple circle. So if I wanted to guess the number 532, I'd pick the punch card that has a five with the blue triangle, the punch card that has the three with the yellow square, etc. Next, the players have the opportunity to query up to three of four logic cards assigned to their problem. These allow the players to identify the relationship between numbers. So for example, which number is the smallest? Is the second number larger than the number four? That sort of thing. Those are just a couple of examples. Through a series of rounds, players will continue to pick numbers and query the machine until they think they have the right answer, at which point they'll have to guess. And the first player to guess correctly is the winner. Turing Machine was designed by Fabienne Gradel and Johan Levet and is published by Scorpion Mask. Thanks for that description, Chris. I am disappointed you didn't mention Keira Knightley in the Imitation Game. Benedict Cumberbatch was great and all, right? And the lead character, but come on. Sorry, Kira. In any case, <laughs> let's, let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms of the Turing Machine. So it's pretty straight forward game it's a very it's just a logic puzzle you the first thing you're going to do is pick a three digit number and it matters that the number that you pick matters because you have these cards that you're going to test your three digit number against these verification cards they call them and like chris said in the rules description maybe it's like okay the blue number and the yellow number add up to uh six you're checking it if their sum is more than six equal to six or less than six so, okay, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm going to pick four and a two and see if I can nail it right off the bat and see if that's uh, a good hit if I get a check mark on that. And maybe there's another criteria what, that says like the the blue is less than the yellow number. So you can kind of combo those together and you can deduce a few things about the blue number and the yellow number from those two verification cards. So that's the first aspect of this game is looking at these four or more verification cards. Tonight we just played with four and trying to come up with a three digit number that you're going to test against these different cards. I think that choice right off the bat and the interpretation of these verification cards just gets your brain kind of cooking right away. Yeah, cooking like that egg in that ad in the 80s. This is your brain. This is your brain on on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I got to say, one of the things that I found really interesting about this game was that there are different difficulty levels because this is essentially a puzzle. I mean, in, a pu in like almost the pure sense, like like Sudoku is a puzzle or a crosswords a puzzle. And you can you can choose your own difficulty. So we had some that started with as simple as these two number, one number is larger than another number, or there are ones in this three-digit code, that kind of a thing, all the way up to some that were so complicated and they had columns of different conditions that honestly, even after playing it a couple times now, I am not even quite sure how to interpret those, those conditions. So you could definitely go pretty deep on this one. And for those who are real hardcore logic puzzle type people, I think this will keep you going for a while, going from those easy cards to the really hard cards, which were incredibly hard. Yeah, I, and I want to mention the most clever and ingenious part of this is the way that they give you a, a notepad to keep track of what you're 
of what you're paying attention to or what, or what you're tracking, I guess, because the clues are challenging, but it's like, there's just enough information on this little piece of paper that you can start to give yourself little reminders, mark off a number that you've ruled out this first round or mark off which of the clues match. So you could actually go back three rounds earlier and see, okay, wait, if I recompare those again to the numbers that I had in that row, I can tell whether I was, I guessed wrong there or whether I was on the right track. So it's, it's quite smart how just this little piece of paper gives you enough information to start to deduce out how these answers are coming together. And I think that worked really well. <sighs> this game is so interesting and in that it, okay. It reminded me of, um, I talked about ricochet robots when I went to BGG con recently. And it was a game where I sat down with a group of people and we all stared at something on the table for a few minutes. And then it got fun. Once you started to put it together and you started to guess the answers, then it got fun. And that's kind of what Turing Machine is. It's interesting in that it's also like very solitaire. You're not interact. You're just sitting there like staring at something and trying to figure it out. But then somehow there is excitement when you do start to you you start to realize okay wait I'm putting this puzzle together but can I beat the person next to me? So it's a, it's a very it's a very interesting. Have you guys played any other deduction games? Is this the is this the only deduction game you've played, or do you have anything else you could compare it against? I don't have any other deduction games or social deduction games other than you know something like Shamans is maybe the closest where you're like oh I figured out that what he's doing. But there's a lot of bluffing in that one. This one is pure logic and pure reason. So yeah, this is the most purest form of a deduction game I've ever played. Yeah, I wouldn't even call this, I mean, it is a deduction game in the way that you can deduce a number using logic, but I don't think of it as like social deduction, like shamans or werewolf or yeah, I, like I- Yeah, you know, well, it's different. I, the closest that I can think of to this, and somebody even mentioned this when we were playing, it's to Sentient, which we played at uh, SedonaCon. And that had some similar vibes to it. It had a little bit more game attached to it, I think, because you were trying to win rounds in service of getting, I forget all the details of it, but you were trying to get robots and build points and things like that. In this one, it really is as simple as you want to be the first one to solve the puzzle. But I think to me, it felt like some pretty similar concepts. What about you, Tim? Yeah, this was a first for me too. I mean, I know there's other deduction games out there, but it's just not something that's been in my circle that other people have brought to the table before. So it was kind of unique to me. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it. Yeah, I agree. So one of the other things interesting to me was the physical cards that come with this game and the way it's set up. One of the mechanisms, so you you take a stab at your number and you're going to choose which verification card you're going to use. And then you march on over to your cards and you slot that in there and you get this either this X or this green check mark. And that kind of tells you oh, I met the criteria or I didn't. And hmm, what does that mean about the numbers that I've chosen? I like that whole mechanism, I guess, is what it is. It's, I guess, into production too. But that's a very clever, very neat way of doing something that's just very alluring and unique about this game. Yeah, and those cards, all they do is they give you an affirmative or a negative. So whenever you pick one of these conditions all the card is going to tell you is you've met the condition or you haven't met the condition, which is pretty can be pretty vague in some situations because all it's giving you is a very little piece of information. So it's really all about stringing together these propositions in a way that you can find out the maximum amount of information by querying these different cards. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting was how the 
win condition wasn't just to guess the you had to guess the code right. Well, actually, I'm going to pause on that for a second. You don't actually have to guess the code right. I, <laughs> I won a game, one of the games that we played. We played this several times tonight. I won one of them just by being the only person who didn't guess wrong. So I feel like that was kind of a kind of a lame victory. But you can have multiple people who do guess correctly. And then the tiebreaker is who did it in the fewest guesses or who who did the fewest queries. And that actually was there was some strategy in there because there was one round, I think it was actually the one where I won, where I got two, because you're, you're allowed to do three queries each round. And after I did two of them, I realized there's not a lot that I'm going to be able to learn by doing another one of them. So I'm going to save that query and go to the next round with some different numbers where they might actually be more useful. And so you really kind of have to think about do I want to use the query because it's going to be a point against me in the tiebreaker if I'm correct and Adam's correct, Tim's correct, Steve's correct, whatever. So did you guys find yourself when you were thinking about like, am I ready to take a guess? How much do I know? Were you willing to take a chance and make a little bit of a guess because you wanted to get in front of somebody else? Or did you find yourself really trying to go until you thought you had the actual answer? So I'm pretty risk averse and I will rarely just like take a stab at something if I think I'm going to lose if I get it wrong. And the only exception being there was one puzzle tonight where I didn't think that there was even a way to get more, you know, more information. In other words, it, it to me, it felt like you, you really had to guess down to two or three answers. I can't remember if I think I got that one wrong, though. So I probably had it totally off. Generally, I felt like I was pretty confident in my answer or if I didn't know for sure. I knew that it was one of two and it would have taken me several more rounds to deduce it perfectly. So I was like, I can't waste all that time with it. But Chris, you're right. I think one of the genius things about this design is that tiebreaker. The fact that if you, the more deductions you do, the, you know, the kind of the more clues you take advantage of that hurts you in the tiebreaker because it is so tight as far as like people are kind of coming to an answer in the same round. So in an earlier round, if you're like, well, I might get some information from that. But oftentimes I would just not to choose that third that third clue because or sometimes even the second. There was a couple of rounds where I only took one clue and then said, I can't get anything useful unless I get really lucky with these other guesses. So let me move into the next round and have less clues. And it actually won me the game. So I think that's a really smart part of the design. That's a great point, you guys. I think part of the genius of this game is it's it's hard logic. And if you it's a combination of picking the right numbers to test and using the right verification cards to be able to deduce the code in the fewest amount of deductions. So I think that's great that they have that tiebreaker criteria. If you can do it in the few, fewest amount of verifications, there was times when you can just do that, those three verifications in the first round and maybe one or maybe two verifications in that second round. And that's all you needed if you did it just right. And again, that was based on the digit selection and those verification cards. I thought it was a very fascinating, very clever puzzle. Yeah. And speaking of the puzzle aspect of this, it really, there is a setup for each of these puzzles. Like there is not, uh, this isn't just a, you, you take one out of the box and you throw it down and you just start working on it. There's a book that contains the setup for each one. So, you know, these cards fit together in ways that I can't even really explain. You, you just kind of have to look at it, watch a video or pick up a copy of the game to see how these cards interact with each other to give you the answers. So you do have to go with a 
predefined setup. But like I mentioned in the um, in the game description, there is a book that contains a whole bunch of them. I'm not sure how many. I assume quite a few. But there's also a website for the the game set up by the designers where you can get you know literally millions of different combinations and variations that you could use. So when I first saw that you had to set up based on a set of predefined criteria. I was a little bit skeptical because I was like, well, are you going to run out? But considering how many you have available to you, I can't imagine that anybody's going to play this game enough times to actually use up all the different variables there. One of the things that was interesting to me is that even though there is logic to be used here, I think, and it's probably a good thing, but there is a little bit of luck most of the time too. You can make some decisions about which numbers you should use in your first try. But sometimes if you get a little bit lucky and maybe switch this digit for that digit, it'll just match up a couple of the codes where it wouldn't have if you'd gone a different way. Is that good? Is that bad? I think it's good in a game of this weight and this type because it gives everybody a chance. I mean, when we sat down to play tonight, Adam was confident he was going to win every single game of this because he's so <laughs> smart. And yet we all we all did pretty well tonight. We all had a couple of wins throughout the night. And, um, and I think you know part of that is due to you know, the fact that we're all reasonably smart, even even if Adam doesn't believe it, but also that um, that we all had a, just a little bit of, you know, sometimes luck came into it. And that was fun. It was even when you just got a little bit lucky, it was fun. Adam, did you really think you were going to win all those games or were you just talking smack? <laughs> yeah, I uh, <laughs> I came in trash talking of super confident because I, I love the I think I just enjoy this kind of a puzzle a lot. And I haven't seen a game that does this kind of a thing. So I did a couple of the solo modes on a board game arena this game's on board game arena if you want to challenge yourself and i was getting it i was feeling so confident i was i'm going to trash these guys at the logic puzzle i studied math in college so i can do this stuff super great and no i got schooled a bunch of times by you guys over and over so it was a little humble pie a little slap in the face bring me down a few notches which was i still had a obviously a fun time playing this one and no did i really think i was gonna crush you guys i was hoping i was going to <laughs> but um no that's the nature of this game you're gonna come in you're gonna you're gonna try and do your best on guessing these numbers and sometimes you'll hit it right and you'll get the right numbers right off the bat that'll give you these green check marks and you'll know you'll have a couple leaps ahead of your opponents there and be able to get these three digits a little bit sooner all right well let's jump into the theme and production and chris touched on it already i am just flabbergasted at how they managed to make these puzzles work with these punch cards. With I, I don't know. There's some designer diary. I swear I just ran across it on Board Game Geek or Board Game Arena or something like that. There's a designer diary out there from the designers. Fairly recent. And uh, you should check it out. I didn't read the whole thing. I was just glancing through it. But I just I can't fathom how they managed to make these combinations work with these physical components and the quantity of punch cards they put together here. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, so I don't know how many of these punch cards or puzzles are in the box, but with the combinations of them, like Chris said, you can literally make millions of these different types of puzzles between the the digits that you're using and the verification cards that you're using. It's fantastic. So what you're doing is you're stacking these three numbers together of the numbers that you want to choose, and then you're using these verification cards behind it and these have little windows each little punch card each little number card that you're choosing it's like a square or rectangle and it has these little windows and they line up just right with the verification card so as you're looking through that's when you see the little x the red x or the green check mark pops through so an outstanding 
production based on old school computer programming punch cards. What a neat way to put a game together. I was absolutely flabbergasted by this. I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of computing power that you had to have just to like run all the different variations on where the holes need to be to line up in the right spot. They must have had their own Turing machine, I guess, to, to do that. Interestingly, just as a, a little historical side note, the real Turing machines didn't actually use punch cards. They used strips of tape that would run through a machine and it would, I don't even know what it would do, but I looked this up because I was fascinated by it. And there are these little tape machines where like a ticker tape kind of thing. You know, clearly the the punch cards evoke an earlier you know day of computing back when computers used punch cards, which is so quaint to us now in the day when, you know, even the little disc symbol that you see for like save on your computer, like our kids don't know what a disc looks like. They know what save, the save symbol is, but they don't know what a disc looks like. And here we are talking about, you know, punch cards, which is a precursor even to, you know, tape. So it's cra- crazy, crazy stuff. And they did such a cool job of putting it together in a way that looked cool and carried through that feel and also had a little bit of charm to it because on the centerpiece of this computer where you put these proposition cards there are these funny little computer faces that are making you know different they're almost like little emojis but in like 18 you know it's 8-bit graphics and honestly i thought that was kind of cute and charming so you know this is not a game that has a whole lot of theme on it it's basically a straight puzzle but what little bit they had tacked on there actually was an improvement and made the game even a bit more fun than it already was yeah aside from those little 8-bit graphic faces which reminded me of hell from like uh 2001 a space odyssey or no not hell you know what it was it's from moon do you remember seeing that movie i was at that are you saying hell like what hell hell what are you saying remember hell from do you guys ever see space odyssey uh 2001 a space odyssey hell don't turn me off dave yeah it's hell isn't it isn't h-a-l h-a-l is what you're saying i'm saying hell it's hell. <laughs> it's hell. <laughs> I didn't know what you're saying because you're Wisconsin accent or whatever you're saying. I'm yeah, I was like, what hell? Is that like a, I don't even know what that is. Okay, forget about hell for a second. Do you guys ever see the movie Moon? Yes. Do you know yes. what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, so the computer in there played by the disgusting Kevin Spacey was, it had that like face uh-huh. on it on the little computer. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. That, yep. Yes. So that's what I was thinking of when I was, when I was seeing that little face on there. Anyway. Was his name hell? No, it wasn't. Or more recent, uh, Spider-Man, Spider-Verse, if you've seen those movies, the animated ones with Miles, the robot one, the anime robot one has a nice little computer emoji, same style. There you go. (laughs) Okay. Totally. If you're not as old as us, then that would be a good example to go to. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I think that the whole production and theme here just, it could have been so much worse. And uh, to be honest, I think it was, because again, I started to read that design diary and it was like a little farmyard animal deduction game is what they started with so i don't know whose idea it was to turn this into a punch card look and the turing machine but it was a smart decision and it's it's charming in a way that makes me want to play it more than if it was you know almost probably any other theme with this with these types of components yep all right well let's jump into our final discussion and that is would you request to play this game yes i would request to play this game again i think i want to buy it i think it's so unique and the puzzles are so fantastic it's something akin to 
doing a crossword every morning or a Sudoku Sudoku puzzle every morning, just kind of wake up and get your brain going, have some coffee, throw together one of these puzzles. It's on Board Game Arena. You can challenge yourself anytime you want. Just click on and you can be done in, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however long you want to think about this thing. I want the physical production because it looks so fascinating to me and there's just millions of combinations of puzzles. I want to show this one to my kids get them working their brains with logic and hard logic so they can, you know, follow steps and deduce things and think logically and intelligently. There's so much to like about this game, at least for me. So I would request to play this game and I am going to buy this game. So I'm shocked to be saying this, but yes, I will ask to play this game again. I hate doing math. I can't even count the number of times, probably because I don't count, but I can't count the number of times that I've told you guys how I hate doing math in games. It drives me absolutely crazy. And even before this game, I think I texted you guys before we started the game tonight and said, I'm going to absolutely despise this game. (laughs) And honestly, I went into it thinking it's going to be kind of fun because every once in a while you have to hate on a game a little bit because you can't love everything. I found myself having a really fun time. I compared it in, a little bit earlier on and in my head was we were playing it to Sentient, which I just, sorry, Adam, just, it just didn't, just didn't click for me. But this one, I, it didn't have any like gigas and, you know, add-ons. There was, there wasn't a lot of theme they tried to put on this or any complications. It was just a straight puzzle. And every once in a while, a simple straight puzzle can be kind of fun. I mean, this is not my normal habitat. I mean, I think that this kind of mathy, puzzly sort of thing is not normally where I find my my happiness. But my wife loves this kind of thing. And I think I could easily get this game played with my family. And it's the kind of game that there's a very low overhead in terms of setup and in terms of time. You could probably play through a game of this and I don't know, on... BGA, it took us about five to 10 minutes to play a game of this. So I'm thinking maybe 15 to 20 if you were playing the physical copy and had to actually pick your cards out and do all the setup and whatnot. So, I mean, there is there's going to be a certain type of gamer who is going to absolutely go ape over this because the puzzliness of it and the elegance of the design and the prettiness of this ever so simple production it's going to be a great, great fit. For me, I think it's a nice fit for a niche that I don't really have much other things like this in my collection. So I may end up picking this one up, especially if I can get my wife to play a game or two of it on BGA. And if she really likes it, I may end up doing that. Um, But overall, uh, I applaud the designers on this one for doing a great job with something that I never thought that I would find myself wanting to play again. Well, I agree, Chris. I applaud the designers as well. I think this is actually a brilliantly designed and created game. And I don't think I'll request to play it again. I didn't I didn't dislike it. I had a fun time with you guys, but I think a lot of the fun for me came either from when I managed to guess the solution and I just it was exciting. It was like it felt clever or just the trash talk that we had. Like somebody like, oh, I got you this time. Oh, you better get your answer in there, right? And so we had fun moments, repeatedly fun moments in the game. But the majority of the game was us kind of just like sitting there looking at the puzzle, trying to figure it out, maybe, you know, making some comments to each other. But but it's not, you know, the game itself wasn't very interactive other than just you racing other people for it. That said, 
there were fun moments in it. I mentioned fun several times as we were talking through this review, but for the most part, sitting there and doing math isn't fun for me. And so, you know, even though there were fun moments, it wasn't generally something I think I'll go and search out, but I would be happy to play it again. I think it's a very clever game. It's a very smart design. I think some people are going to love it and you could have a great time. I had a great time playing with you guys tonight. I think some people are not going to have fun with this, even though, as I mentioned, there is some luck involved with it. But if you got some people in your group that really get turned off by this or just really don't, you know, this type of logic puzzle doesn't click with them, they're going to feel bad because they're not going to like, it's just not going to work with some people well. So there's a little bit of a risk there. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've got a, a group that I think would actually really enjoy playing this, like a local group that I play with. And yet I'm not going to pick it up because I didn't enjoy it enough to do that. But it's a solid game. I think it's fun. I think for the right group, you should check it out. It's it's pretty interesting. And like Chris mentioned, it is on Board Game Arena. So if you just want to learn the rules and try it out there, I think it's worth giving it a shot too. I definitely have found some interest, interesting times uh, going through this thing. All right. Well, that will wrap up our conversation on Turing Machine. Let's jump into some games that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. What have you guys been playing this week? I have had on my table a game called Series. This is a Kickstarter game that I backed. It delivered just recently. It's designed by Gustav Sundstrom with art by Gerasimos Makaridis and Tan Ho Sim. And I mention that because I really enjoy the art. It's these, it's relatively simple, but it's some giant planets and it's giant outer space and a bunch of cards with sci-fi theme we talked about fun at the beginning of the show and this is a worker placement game which i am generally averse to but this one is actually very fun largely in part due to its theme i love that science fiction i love the asteroid belt so series by the way is spelled c-e-r ES, as in the asteroid series, one of the bigger, I don't know, they call them planetoids or asteroids that are out there floating around in the solar system. And it's in a few different sci-fi books. And maybe sometime in the future, it's going to be mined or colonized because it is one of the bigger ones. And there's actually a decent amount of gravity to it. And if they get this thing spinning around enough, like in The Expanse, then you have some gravity on this thing. You've got a bunch of worker placement spots. You've got an amazing production here. The game board itself is massive. You have these three sort of puzzle piece sections that you put together. And in the top left of this is a little depiction of some of the more famous asteroids, I guess, an asteroid. I don't know much about the asteroid belt, but here you have a depiction of these asteroid belt. And it's a, a tiered, like a wedding cake, three little tiers of the asteroid belt and the way these things rotate around between rounds is pretty neat. So the outer layer rotates once inner layer is going to, it's part of that outer layer. So it rotates with it. And then that spins again. And then the inner layer spins one more time. So altogether you have this dynamic rotation of these asteroids. And part of the game is launching these little probes to these little mining probes to these asteroids to harness materials. So all this is done with a worker placement mechanism 
that is tons of fun. The production is clean. The iconography is easy to understand. The information parsing is fantastic. And it's a quick gameplay. You only have, I think, four or five areas to put these little worker pawns. There's just little cylinders, a la something like dominant species, if you're familiar. And you're just popping these out on these spaces that are shaped like circles, so you know right where to put them. Or you can grab these little workers that have just come in from outer space or from you know different parts of the solar system, and you put them on your little outstations, they're called. So some little facilities that you have. And that active, these are done by cards and the workers have to match the color of the card and it gives you a little benefit at the bottom of the card. So we talked about some of these terms, some engine building is happening. You've got worker placement that's happening. You've got a little tableau that you're building in front of you. And as the game goes on, your actions are getting stronger and stronger. All kinds of points are getting handed out here. Usually I'm averse to, you know, here's points for this, here's point for that. But in this case, if you're going to give me a worker placement, hand out free points for everybody, please make it a beautiful production with a theme that's not European farming. I am enjoying this one tons. Not much new here, but a lot of fun for me with the board game series. Such a cool looking game, Adam. I remember you bringing this one up a few episodes ago, and I'm trying to remember the context. Was this in your... It was the incoming Kickstarters. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's right. It was the incoming Kickstarters. I think I backed it. It it delivered relatively quickly, maybe only a year outstanding for this one to get delivered. And it came, the components are, like I said, the production is beautiful, including the, the little components, the little workers are all wood. They're sliced, they're screen printed. And your little mining drones that you're sending out, uh, sending out have this nice, relatively high contrast, little paint job on them. So that's fun to send those out. And then you've got a bunch of cardboard ships, shits. There's hardly any plastic associated with this game, which I thought that was a nice touch too. That is nice. So Adam, I, what is it that stands out to you with this? Uh, it, theme and production obviously is a fit for you because you like sci-fi. But let's, um, I'm going to put you on the spot and compare this to Apiary, which we reviewed a couple weeks ago. Now, that is also a worker placement game with like five worker placement spots on the board, nice production. You know, does this, how does this dif- differentiate? Do you think it's like, would you pick one or the other and, and why? Is it because of mechanisms? Is it because of theme? Is it because of both? Yeah, both are great. I like Apiary because it's probably a little bit quicker. This game, the actions are quick. There's only three rounds of this one as you're going through. There's a card market. I really enjoy that card market. Apiary, I know, has a card market too. And you're tracking the resources. There's really, I don't know, four resources that you're tracking on a Gaia project type resource tracker. With these little lightning bolts, you can have up to 12 of those and special ceramics or acrylics and then ore. So you're tracking those. I think that's fun how you're spending those. So just the economic situation, I really enjoy here. And the decisions, I think, are great. A little more decision space than Apiary, which I thought was a little more confined. It's a little more streamlined in Apiary, like, oh, I'm going to do this and this. Here, there's a little more space to kind of spread your wings and decide which direction you want to go. Are you going to go explore the asteroid belt? Are you going to convert your ore into these different I-beams or whatever, an alloy is what they call them? Are you going to convert your resources into a little mining probe and send that to the launch site. Then it has the way the workers come in is just nice too. You start with 
different color for each player that's in there. And then you can see the three ships that are coming in each round. There's a couple workers on there too. So you can plan ahead a little bit on how those are going to be used in the game too. So all of that. And I think the little hard sci-fi is a nice touch too. I like seeing the asteroid belt and learning all these different asteroids that are out there. The production is nice for me. The giant depiction of series and then Mars over there in the, uh, the bottom left. So those things come together and make this one just a slightly more appealing, I guess in the right circumstance, I'd probably, well, I own this one, so I'm going to be playing it a lot more than I'm playing Apiary. But for the right circumstance, yeah, I think Apiary is going to be the, the more preferable game. But since I have this one, it's out there. And I bought this one because I do enjoy the theme a little bit more than the fantastical B theme of Apiary. Well, it definitely, I, you know, I love a good worker placement game and one that you're into, I'm, I'm all aboard. I love the card market. Everything you said about it made me very excited to play it. So I hope we get to play this at our next con together. So my table has actually been filled with the same game that I mentioned last time, which is actually pretty delightful. Uh, my wife and I have been playing a campaign of Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated, and we have spent the better part of the week playing this game it's been like almost fanatical the amount we've been playing this game and we just yesterday finished our campaign and i gotta say i had as much or more fun playing it this time than the first time that i played this same campaign for those who hadn't heard me talk about it before i mentioned uh, last time i talked about this game that tim and i had played through the full campaign several years ago when the game first came out and i'm playing it again bunch of new surprises, a bunch of fun stuff. And I absolutely got crushed by my wife. So even with that, I still ended up having a great time. I think probably the most fun legacy game experience that I've ever had, probably one of the most fun board game experiences I've ever had for a second time in the row. Highly, highly, highly recommend this game. Chris, okay, so some follow up questions now. First, second time playing through the campaign. Now that you finished it, do you think your board and your cards are different enough to say that it's kind of like a like a different final experience than what when we played through it. I wish I could remember more of the details from when we played through the campaign. It was long enough ago that I don't remember some details, but I'm pretty sure that there were some significant differences. Like I I don't want to say any spoilers, but I think there was a whole game that got tagged on to this campaign that we never had. Wow. Oh, cool. So stuff like that that popped up you know, again, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I think there was enough things in there that were different that uh, it definitely was worth it. And honestly, you know, even if I, even if it had been exactly the same, it was long enough ago that I wouldn't remember all the details. You've played it at two players twice. Is that the only way you play it? Do you think it'd be good at three or four? What's the best way to do this one? I think it would be good at three. Like most games, I think it's probably best at three. I think the one thing that I found when we were playing it that I don't recall, Tim, maybe you have a recollection of this, but I found that playing it with my wife, so Rachel and I, we didn't really feel like we were being pressed to rush back to the home base quite as much as we would have if we were playing it with more players. Because one of the things that happens in this game, yeah. like in all the Clank games, is there's a, there's a mechanism where once somebody makes it back and comes off the board or somebody dies, there becomes something like a countdown and it works slightly differently in the different variations of the game. And the way it works in Acquisitions Incorporated 
is that once a player goes off the board, every time it comes back around to their turn, they pull more cubes out of the bag. So there's basically an attack, a dragon attack, every time their turn comes around. And that's really bad. I mean, that's that's how you die. But in her case, like she always felt like she was just strolling around kind of leisurely because she had a card or two that she had modified that gave her a heart every time she drew a particular card. And so she was always kind of knocking her you know, knocking her health back down to a more manageable level. And so I wish, if anything, that was the one complaint that I had. Was I wish there was a little bit more urgency because there was one game where we were just kind of, you know, wandering around, you know, over by the the home base, racking up lots and lots of spending points and buying expensive cards just to get more points. That was the one one downside. So I think that would be fixed by playing it at three. I'm, I'm sure it would happen if you were playing it at four. But even at two, and that was a relatively minor complaint. So I would still, I would still want to play it at two also. Chris, I absolutely remember that from our campaign and that I remember that Chris won 10 out of the 11 games that we played of that against me. Oh my. And, but I think we both only got knocked out once. And so it definitely felt less tense, less risky than any other version of, of Clank. I played even other two player versions. So I don't even think that that's just a player count issue, although it might be adapted. I think it I think what they're trying to do there is making sure that you are not too rushed to be able to explore some of the new elements and mm. unlock new components, which is good and and bad. I, I didn't feel like the the Clank Legacy game was particularly balanced. And if that is concerning to you, meaning like, in other words, it's not a truly competitive game. And Clank always has those fun surprise elements. Yeah. I felt like Clank Legacy out of any of them was more just more of a fun experience. Every time I would be like, oh, if I rush out now, I can get Chris locked down in the bottom and he would just kind of stroll his way back up and he never, it never felt tense at all. And I did that repeatedly throughout the campaign and every time I regretted it. So Chris, same exact thing that you experienced with Rachel. I felt when I was playing with you, maybe it would be different. I do think that that game though would have been better at three or four players because Mm -hmm. there was, if I remember some competition for like, you know, the goals that you get and marks that you get to put Mm -hmm. on your box at the end of the round based on who got out first and who scored the most points and things like that. So I think having more players at least would have had some more competition in the campaign itself, which could have been interesting. Yeah. All that being said, I want to go back and play this again now because you're reminding me how much fun I had playing with it. I'm going to have to ask my wife because she likes Clank. And so I'll have to see if she'd be interested in going through a a legacy game with, because I like to do that. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, Chris, if, if you found another person that was interested in playing this game, would you play this legacy game for a third time in a couple years down the road or have you had enough? I think I would. I mean, I wouldn't want to play it right now because right now, frankly, I'm burned out on it after like 12 straight games over the course of a week. <laughs> but give it a couple of years and I probably would. It This game is a blast. Cool. There is Clink Legacy 2 coming out. It was on Kickstarter last year. So I think it's going to be coming out in like six months That's to right. a year or something like that. So I'm I'm hoping to pick that one up and get it played either with my wife or with my local group. Uh, sometime next year, so that'll be exciting. Yep, very cool, Chris. I'm. Uh, it's fun to hear how uh, how that came back in for you again. So I've got a little bit older game that's been on my table recently. This is a game that was published in 1991, and the designer was Urs Hostelter. And this is Teach You. This is a ladder climbing game, a, a team ladder, ladder climbing game. So this can only be played at four players, and it's a little bizarre. Let me just give you some rules. Let me just tell you the experience. The first time I got exposed to this, I was at BGG Con and some friends were 
were starting out a game. So I went and sat down. I just finished a game somewhere else. I went and sat down to watch their game for a few minutes. And five minutes in, and I was like, you guys are playing Calvin Ball. There's You're making up the rules as you go. <laughs> and that's what it feels like until you really get the hang of this game. Basically, just a, a rough rough idea of the rules, but it'll, it'll probably you know be interesting to see how weird it is. First, there's a couple ways you can start a hand. So whoever leads the hand is going to you know, start with a certain type of hand. You can either start with a single card, which is pretty normal, and then the next person would have to play a higher card. Or you could play a set. You could play two twos, or you could play three threes, five threes. So you can play a set. You can play a run, which would be, you know, one, two, three, four, five. It has to be a minimum of five, but it could be any number. But if someone else follows, let's say that I played two, three, four, five, six, the next person would have to play a run of five. They couldn't play a run of six or seven or whatever. They'd have to match that. You can play a full house. And then there's a couple hands that are what are called bombs, which means no matter who's played, who's winning, if you play one of these things, you're going to win the hand and it can play, be played on any hand. So like a four of a kind will beat anything. It doesn't matter whether they're playing a run or a single card or anything. Normally, you can't just beat a bigger you know, a hand with a bigger hand. You have to play something that matches. You can't just someone could have a two. You can't play a full house, but with a bomb, you can beat them. So that would be a royal flush or a four of a kind. And by the way, there are no other flushes except the royal flush. So that's kind of how the card, the hand, the the game works is that you're basically going around in a circle. You can always pass, but there's some betting with it. So first, as people are dealing the cards around the table, I think everyone starts with 13 cards, but once you've been dealt your first eight cards, you can look at them and you can make a bet. You can call grand teach you. So you're basically looking with very imperfect information, but if you bet that and win, you get 300 points if you're the first one to go out after you've called a Grand Tichu. But you also would lose that many points if somebody else goes out before you. Remember, this is a four-player game, so you have to be really confident in your hand. But after you've dealt, been dealt your full 13, if nobody takes the Grand Tichu bet, or even if they do, once you've been dealt your full hand, if it, before you play your first card, and you can always pass any number of hands, but before you play your first card, if you call Tichu, then you're making a bet that if you're going to go out first, and if you do, you're going to get 200 points. If you don't, you're going to lose 200 points. Okay, not too complicated yet. Now there's four special cards in the deck. One of them is the dog. The dog says, when I play this, my partner's going to now start the next hand. So that's it. Like you're basically just passing up because the whole the, the whole strategy with this game is leading. Because if you can lead, you can set up any kind of hand that potentially nobody else can even match. And if you can do that a few times in a row, you can dump your hand, you can win that teach you. So it's all about leading, taking a trick, and then running with it. The other special cards, one of them is the Phoenix, I think, which is a, it's a wild, you can use it in any hand as anything. But once you win the hand, you have to give that Phoenix to one of the other opponents. So they're getting, and it's worth like 25 points. So there's points that you're giving up if you do that. And then there's the dragon, and the dragon says, it's always going to beat any single card. So like normally two through ace is a single card hand. So you could play a two or you Tim, are you just making up these rules as I you know, go right? right now? What are you talking <laughs> about? Right now? I know, right? That's what it feels like. And then there's a, so, you know, there's a few different like special cards, but what gets so exciting as you start to play these hands is you start to realize how you can help your opponent. It also has one of these, I forget what it's called, but it's like this, this thing where when you get your full 13 cards, you're going to pass one card to your, to the person across from which is your teammate. And then you're going to pass one card to each of your opponents, but then they're all going to pass cards to you as well. So you get a chance to maybe try to dump a couple cards that aren't going to work with your hand and hope you don't get them back. Or you can maybe give a really great card to your 
teammate, if you think they're going to, you know, like you don't have a great hand, you want to make sure that they can go out first. And oh, the whole the whole scoring of the game, like, yeah, you can get points in winning a hand. You get points for fives score, tens score, and I forget. And then like there's negative points for one of the wild cards and positive points for one of the wild cards. But you don't even care about those because really the points are going to come from winning a Tichu bet. So like it's more about just like going out first when you've called Tichu. The game is just quirky, it's silly, and it's so much fun. And there's so much strategy in it. I'm I'm loving it. I played several hours with my local game group when we were just learning it. I called Tichu like three times in a row and failed it. We were like 600 points in the hole before we even started playing. But me and my friends finally almost came back. We had to call it. It was like one o'clock in the morning by, we, by the time we wrapped up. So I didn't get to finish that game. But I've been playing on Board Game Arena with some, some of the Board Game Hot Takes community out there. Uh, some people you know, brought up the game after I mentioned it on social media. And I've been playing with some people out there and having a great time with it. So yeah, Tichu, great ladder climbing card game if you want kind of a classic, but really funky and slightly complex ladder climbing, you know, type of trick taking type of type of card game. You should check it out. It's it's very fun. Uh, just have someone teach it to you that, that is a good teacher. I love how all the pictures you find on BGG of people playing Tichu, it's these like ganky old, you know, moth-eaten, dog-eared decks of cards that, you know, covered in like, you know, coffee and it's <laughs> like, uh, there's no, there's no new decks of Tichu, it looks like. Well, there, there actually is. So like the deck I got to play with my friend imported, I think from Korea and it was beautiful. It's this beautiful, like black and silver embossed um, cards, sure. mostly looks like kind of standard playing cards, except the wilds. The special cards have really nice artwork on them, but the box itself was really cool. So you can get new versions of this, but yeah, it's an older game. It's been around for a while. It's been in, it's been printed, I think, by several publishers. So, you know, who cares? I, I mean, it doesn't really matter with this type <laughs> of game, right? It could be could be anything. Very cool. Classic. Adam, this seems like it'd be up your alley. Does it sound interesting to you? Do you feel like you'd, you'd have fun playing or just feel like it's too... I just bought it, Tim. Okay. Nice. Well, that answers that. <laughs> right on. And who are you? It's a four-player only game. Who are you going to play it with? <laughs> don't oh, worry about that. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Shelf of shame. 2025. Four Adams will play this one, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. You got a nice four-player group of friends to play card games with there. It is. It's so fun. And once you guys get the handle on it, like my local group, that's all they're chatting about now in our chat group. Like they don't want to play. They don't want to talk about anything else. They just want to... They're just talking about teaching all the time i think it's i think i now have a teacher group i no longer have a board game group. <laughs> i've heard enough about it from so many different sources that the game is so fun and has these moments of surprise and shock and you know these great emotional climax moments that i yeah i just bought a little tin of it for 15 bucks <laughs> why not chris why are you why are you shaking your head like it's it sounds I, like the worst thing you've ever heard i don't know it's a deck of cards man how exciting can it be <laughs> <laughs> all right well that will wrap up this episode of board game hot takes i do have a couple quick apple podcast reviews to read and as always if you if you enjoy the show please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. the first one is a five-star review the title was the only gaming podcast to which i listen very proper grammar there i appreciate that there are a lot of board game podcasts out there, but only so many hours I can drive to work or walk my dog. This is the only gaming podcast I make sure I listen to every week. The hosts, Tim, Adam, and Chris are not professional game designers or experts. They are regular gamers who give their honest opinions about the games they play with each other, as well as other games they play with their friends and family. The format is fun and informative. Each week, they either review a game they just finished playing, sometimes for the first time, or they discuss a topic such as their top games of the year or their favorite games based on an IP. 
I have a non-zero number of games that I've acquired because of the reviews or discussions. Plus, they actively interact with their listeners, encouraging them to contact the show with questions and ideas. Two really big thumbs up for BGHT. This was from Brian, um, who's also known as Running Board Gamer. He's on Instagram, and I'm not a much of an Instagram user, but I do follow him there, and he's always posting great pictures of his, his games and his gameplays over there. So check him out. Brian was also a regular, uh, he used to comment with me on Twitter when, when we were active over there, but him and I have had a running game of Arc Nova on Board Game Arena for the last couple of months. It's pretty closely matched. I'm not going to look at our record. I want to say that we're pretty even. He might be up on me by a game or two, but I'm going to catch up on him. We'll see. So thanks, Brian. I really appreciate that review. Great playing games with you and, and great to interact with you on social media as well. The second review this week was from the, the title was A Cut Above. It's a five-star review. I had my own board gaming podcast a while back, but its success wasn't meant to be. Luckily, I stumbled across these guys who have as close to the type of show as I had attempted, and I'm happy that they're having better success. So many shows out there have a lot of filler. Not these guys. They stay on topic, even if it isn't always about the game and the title, which is nice. Because no matter what, you don't feel like you're stumbling through a barrage of inside jokes or hosts who just like the sound of their own voice. It's a show that gives detailed and concise information with commentary that doesn't feel like someone is telling you to play something or not play something. These guys put forth an extremely inviting and immersive conversation that gives you room to decide for yourself whether or not a particular game is for you, which puts it miles ahead of most. Definitely worth a listen. This is from the the Virgo from LB. And again, that's on Apple Podcasts. Thank you both. That was great reviews. Love hearing that. So glad that uh, the people are enjoying the show out there. I did want to mention too, a few weeks ago, we had Spock's grandpa comment that on the show and they mentioned that they were just starting a podcast inspired by us. They did reach out to me after my call on the show and the name of the show is The Fifth Meeple and I got a chance to listen to it this week and I'd highly recommend you check it out. A format that is very similar to ours with some some kind of different constraints and some nice voices on there. I think they're a show to watch. So give them a give them a shout, give them some listens this week if you're interested in checking another podcast because I've been enjoying it. The fifth meeple, you said. The fifth meeple. All right. Yeah, it's a it, the, the the format's interesting because it's a five. It's a group of five friends that get together and they every week they review two games that are kind of comparable, mm. um, but they're five player. You know, they're, they're minimum five player games, but they kind of follow a format that's very similar ties a couple, you know, a, a couple other, uh, you know, little different segments and things like that in there. But, um, you know, really, I think I think if you like our show, our, our reviews, I think you you dig this show as well. I'd, I'd check it out. Now, going back to the Virgo from LB, is that Long Beach? I think it is. Now, I don't know this for sure. And, you know, if you hear this Virgo from LB and I got this wrong, let me know. But I think this is Bryce. Um, I Bryce was somebody who I got to know just briefly in Arizona. I think he's moved to Tucson now, but he had told me that he was from Long Beach originally. So that's my guesses because I know he was trying to start his own podcast. That's my guess. Don't know that for sure, but uh, feel free to reach out to us if you want to fill us in. Um, in any case, Virgo from LB. Thanks for the review. Appreciate it. If you're still in LB, hit us up. Maybe Adam will hang out with you. He's, he's, he's right there. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Pretty much anybody cool has lived in Long Beach at some point. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems like a fact just based on just based on three of us. If you put a logic puzzle, <laughs> if you put the Turing machine in here and ask the question, are you from Long Beach? True, true, true. It would be a positive on all three of us. That's got to be. be some confusing X combination of X's and check marks <laughs> that I don't really understand. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening with us this week. Until next week, take care. Good night, all. Bye-bye.